This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like people who don't do courtesy flushes. And I'm your ambassador of ceremonies, the one gear kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Luther Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troll of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. It's January 30th, 2022, 2222. And when you have to use the restroom in a public setting, it's a crapshoot, no pun intended. Man, you enter that door, and there's no telling what's going to be on the other side of that door. It could smell like Clorox, Lysol, freshly clean, or it could smell like somebody's fucking meal from yesterday. And if you're in a situation of the latter, uh, that is just unfortunate and it's uncalled for. Motherfuckers are very inconsiderate. Once again, this speaks on people's inconsideration. When you know you're about to drop a heavy load, especially in a public setting, whether it's a gas station, whether it's at work or a restaurant, you know what you ate. You know what's inside of you. Those demons are ready to fight out of there. Motherfucker, it wouldn't have hurt you to press down on that flusher while you're still doing your deuce. Taking a deuce Bigelow, the deuce McAllister. It would not behoove you to, hey, let me get rid of this stench. I know there's more to go. This is uh, to be continued. I'm not done, but man, I I know I can smell it, and motherfuckers know they can smell it. Unless you got COVID, and if you got COVID, you shouldn't be in public anything. You need to be quarantined at the crib. You know you ate that motherfucking meatloaf with pimento and cheese and goddamn sauce and uh, basil and onions and green peppers and shit. You know it's inside of you, goddammit. Nobody wants to smell your shit. Other people got to come in here and do the shit. Boys and girls, children, my people, my cultivating cultivists, my brothers and sisters, my niggas. If you know, if you know that you're about to do a Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber, motherfucker, click that flusher. I try to do my due diligence on my end. I can't control what people do with their fucking bowel movements. They can't even control their bowel movements a lot of the time. I can, and they can't, I can't control their decisions when they're making their bowels move. But what I know I can do, I know what the fuck I ate. I know I've been eating beans and cheese and my macaroni and all that shit. You know what? Mm, yeah, man, that, that odor, I, I'm getting a whiff of it. You know what? Let's click that. Man, but, you know, man, that fucking, that water be flashing up your butt, man. Man, that's that gay shit, man. Dude, shut the fuck up, man. Motherfuckers will completely ignore being fucking responsible and considerate. They will just overlook that because they don't want to be looked at as gay. And, you know, we got a lot of motherfucking dumbass people who still dwell amongst us in 2022 
who think along those lines. Motherfucker, if you don't get that stank out of this room, man, other people got to use this bitch. And flush that motherfucker when you're done. I don't know what's worse. A motherfucker who don't courtesy flush or a motherfucker who don't flush it. I mean, you know what? A motherfucker that don't flush at all, that's the worst of the worst. When you just fucking let that shit just sit. Literally. Who raised you, motherfuckers? I feel like some of you motherfuckers need to be in zoos. A lot of people, a lot of grown adults are one or two chromosomes away from just flinging poo at each other and eating it. But I digress. Over the week, uh, I lost a a dear buddy of mine, uh, Todd. And I met Todd in the cover band slash tribute band scene in Houston. Uh, We shared stages together. Uh, We shared a bandmate together. Uh, One of my best friends, Flux. Uh, he he's the basis of my band Priest of Hiroshima and when we started doing our tribute thing for the uh, Priest of Hiroshima we were a rage tribute band I've said this before and uh, you know Flux is also the basis in Spiral Out he was uh, the basis of a tool tribute band and Todd was the guitarist and just over the week we just lost him uh, you know he had some health issues uh, his intestines his kidneys were failing and uh, you know he he had his demons that he was facing and that I, I don't care to get into not on here um, but you know he, he was a part of that that music scene and uh, very talented musician man uh, we went to different cities together because Flux was in both bands uh, you know we would go to Beaumont uh, make some money there and then we'd go to Louisiana and, and hit up that scene that tribute scene over there uh, you know he was much older than me I want to say he was uh, knocking on the door of 50 if he wasn't already um, but a really cool dude man uh, you know he was very savvy as far as pop culture especially from the 90s and you know people know how I feel about the 90s uh, you know he could talk about rock and roll he could talk about metal um, the good shit man um, you know even in the 80s and 70s man and I enjoy those kind of discussions with him before and after shows um, he was in a tool tribute band, but he was a fan of rage at the same time. I was in a rage tribute, but I was a fan of tool at the same time. Still, still am. Um, so, you know, we, we had a lot of similarities, man. Um, despite our age difference, despite our color difference, all of that, man. And he will be missed. Uh, man, Todd, uh, hope to see you again. And, uh, let's make some noise when we do, man. Today we have the conference championships, uh, the NFC championship, aka the California Cup, uh, San Francisco 49ers against the Los Angeles Rams, and we got the AFC championship, the Kansas City Chiefs against the Cincinnati Bungles, oh my god, I mean, I, I got a pull for the natty, the nasty man, I mean, Joe Burrow, he, uh, he, originally he's in Ohioan or an Iowan, but he spent some time in Ohio. He went to high school uh, in Ohio and he was actually scouted and recruited by the Buckeyes. He was a Buckeye for a hot second before he ended up going to LSU. Uh, you know, as far as the Rams, man, I mean, if Stafford wins, I can't be mad because like I said before, man, he, he survived playing for years in Detroit, man, and he was serviceable, he he was trying to 
make lemonade out of the lemons given to them. And, and that's essentially what happens when you're drafted by the Lions. You know, it's a shitload of lemons and not even le- like they're aged lemons uh, that are rotted and, you know, mostly pills on top of that. But here's Stafford, man. He's got a, a new lease on life. And hey, man, I wouldn't be mad if he wins. But if uh, Janine Garofalo and the Niners win, I mean, it, it, especially if they win it all, you know, there, there's some solace in knowing that, OK, my Cowboys lost to the eventual Super Bowl champs. That That's always my perspective. When any of my team lose in the playoffs, it's like, OK, motherfucker, it, it numbs the pain it it dumb it dulls the senses and all of that shit as a fan if you take this shit all the way you better take this shit all the way if you beat my team god damn it i I feel like if a team eliminates my team in the playoffs and they end up getting like cracked in the next round it's like ah shit that was all for not we lost to some fucking losers we're some losers of losers but anyways it don't matter. Either one of you win. It's okay with me. Not going to lose any sleep. Same thing with the Chiefs because I like my homes. You know, uh, I loved it when he played Darlene Connor for all those years on Roseanne. But also, man, I'm really looking forward to this Death Row uh, Dr. Dre influence halftime performance, man. Eminem, Snoop, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick. I'm looking for this to be one of the best halftime performances of all time. Um, you know, and I also love the fact that speaking of the Super Bowl, Tom Brady won't be in it as well as Aaron Rodgers. Fuck Aaron Rodgers for life. Dez caught that goddamn ball. I cannot stress that enough. And we don't know if Mr. Goat, y'all's goat, their goat. I don't know. We don't know if the motherfucker's done done. You know, Adam Schefter, all the ESPN pundits, they they announced it, they reported it, and the outpouring of fans, oh, the GOAT is gone, no, the Brady is no more. Shit, I'm hoping that's the case. Just this morning, the motherfucker was like, oh, pump fake, uh, I might be, bitch, I might not be. And I'm just so over it. I give the man his credit where it's due. The Super Bowl against the Falcons probably one of the greatest performances not just football in all of sports that shit was unprecedented in the big game the big game where commercials cost a million dollars per second he did that shit against atlanta crazy deficit 28-3 can't take that away from him there's no way you can fucking deflate gate tug rule nah man the numbers are numbers he did that shit i give him that Motherfuckers are going so far as to call him the GOAT, and you have a justifiable reason, an argument, to call him the GOAT of football. He's still not my fucking GOAT. That title belongs to Deion Sanders. But what kills me is when motherfuckers really jump the gun and call him the greatest athlete of all time. Oh man, I understand. He's got the rings and he's a quarterback. The quarterback is one of the most prized positions in all the sports. However, when you're talking about athlete an athlete i'm looking at the whole deal the shit that Deion sanders did the shit that bo jackson did the shit that fucking herschel walker used to do oh my god that's pretty athletic when you can break through tackles when you can outrun your fucking opponent make a play right on your opponent steal their fucking thunder 
Dion used to do that. Bo Jackson used to fucking bolt through motherfuckers. Herschel Walker, too. That's pretty athletic. When you're a six foot six motherfucker dunking on a seven footer like Michael Jordan used to do or Scottie Pippen used to do, hell, even at six foot eight, the shit that I've seen LeBron or Raymond James do in his career, that's pretty fucking athletic. Shit, the shit that I see John ja Morant do, and I'm about the same height as John ja Morant. He's putting seven footers on posters. That's pretty athletic, man. But so to say Tom Brady is the greatest athlete, get the fuck out of here. Serena Williams should get that position before Mr. Brady. The shit that Serena Williams has done in her career, that's athletic. Tennis is nonstop until the fucking play stops. That's the only rest you get. It's balls to the wall, ball over the fucking net. Huh. Yeah, and they are fucking slinging that tennis ball. Tom Brady, last of a dying breed. That pocket passing shit is becoming extinct. We are in the era of Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, Dak. Tom Brady, he had a good eye. He had a rocket. He can do his dirt. He did his thing. But shit. He was not known for being agile. He was not known for being quick on his feet. Nimble. And in this era of the NFL, you must. Because in the examples that we've seen Tom Brady get rocked. And the reasons because the reasons he got rocked. Because, oh, every now and then the O-line, they left the gap. They left the hole. And when it was linebacker heading towards him, he just did not know how to respond. Out for the whole rest of the season. That type of shit. He wasn't prone to getting hit a lot. That's what has allowed him to have this fucking 11-year run. If he was getting rocked like Aikman was, rocked like Jim Kelly was, shit. I don't think he'd be around enough to have as many rings as he's got. He was blessed enough to have great O-lines in front of him. And smart managers, smart coaches. Belichick, he's an evil genius, man. Don't like the guy, he's very smug, he's very Nick Saban. But fuck, man. Gotta give the man his props. And Brady Belichick, hey, man, that was a formula that worked for well over a decade. So not only Brady, I hope he's done. I hope Rodgers just fucking surprises us sometime this spring, sometime this summer. Fuck, man. I know you're not as old as Brady, but I'm just sick of you. And as we're heading towards the halfway point of NBA season, uh, we're, we're getting to the all-star game in Cleveland, in Cleveland, Ohio. Go Ohio. And uh, John ja Morant, going back to him, uh, this is his first time being selected as an all-star starter. And 
man, this man should be MVP of this year. The things that I've seen him done this season, uh, you know, he's got a good young roster around him, but they're exceeding expectations. They're currently third in the West among the, the Warriors. You got what the Blazers, of course, the Lakers, the Nuggets, the Jazz. Yeah, man, the Grizzlies, led by a young Ja Morant. He's a, a crossbreed of Allen Iverson and, shit, I'll say it, Michael Jordan. I just, you, you gotta watch the man play. It's very inspiring to see a man of his stature just do the things that he does. He defies gravity. I mean, the game is just so elevated. You know the thing that kills me when the old school purists, the OGs, when you're having those barbershop talks, oh man, such and such couldn't last in this era. I'm like, man, get the fuck out of here, man. Back in those days, motherfuckers were doing cocaine and playing against postmen. Not not in the post, working in the key big man post. They were fucking postal workers on the off season. Smoking cigarettes after practice and shit. Watch the last dance. Michael Jordan even said himself when he got drafted by the Chicago Bulls, motherfuckers were doing go game after games. Can you imagine LeBron James or fucking somebody of that stature, stature playing one of them old school dudes? Part-time NBA player, part-time bartender. And I don't want to disparage the people from the days of yore. Because some of those guys could play in today's game. Of course, Michael Jordan. A primed Charles Barkley. Would he be as effective? I don't know. Scottie Pippen, Tony Kukoc. Those two people, specifically Kukoc and Pippen, they were the godfathers of this new era. The point forward, man. I think people just don't want to let go of the past. That's really what it comes down to. And it's not just NBA. It's all sports. You mean to tell me if you had Tiger Woods playing against those motherfucking knickerbocker wearing motherfuckers in the 1940s and 30s, he wouldn't just win every fucking championship? Man, please. Put Serena against some of the men. I'm sorry, Arthur Ashe. I'm sorry. I'm saying this Respectfully, John McEnroe, put Serena against you motherfuckers in your prime. I'm sorry. The game is elevated, man. Put Ezekiel Elliott in those 1950s uh, against the fucking Packers and shit. They didn't have juke moves like that shit, spin moves, circle button, motherfucker. Do you think Bart Starr could play in today's game? Fuck no. Those pocket passers, Johnny Unitas, they were good for their time. But I digress. What do I know? Just a nigga with a podcast. Now on Friday, NLE Choppa released his latest album, Me Vs. Me. And it's a really good album. Um, I added a lot of the songs on there, um, but I, I break it down. I have this shit compartmentalized. I have friends who could probably listen to NLE Choppa's album and not appreciate it because it's not lyrical. It's not what they want from hip hop. And I get that. 
going to have people like that. There's a time for the lyricism, the lyrical exercise shit that Eminem does. Then there's a time to turn up. There's a time to just turn that shit up to fucking 11 plus. Hear that 808. And in Ali Chapa, he represents this era of the drill slash trap rapper that can go into singing, sing mode, sing song mode. Which, I don't know. There's a lot of that. The Roddy Riches and all of that, man. But, I listen to it for what it is. The brother is younger than the people from my era. Uh, the people that I grew up listening to. The the Red Mans, the Wu-Tangs, the Nazis, the Jiggas. It's a new era, man. Mumble rap, whatever you want to call it. Drill, trap. There's an art to that. Just because a motherfucker gets on a hot beat with heavy bass, it's not an instant hit. You still got to make good. Not just good, but great. You have to make great work of what's given. If that's your lane, you're going to be a drill rapper. All right, man, you got to be a fire ass drill rapper. Trap. Mumble rap, whatever, man. Can you make a good song? And in Lily Chapa, he does just that, man. I, I don't know. I I don't subscribe to the lifestyle that a lot of these young cats do as far as like pulling out the, the tool and, and, and pistol whipping motherfuckers and all that shit. It's very entertaining. And and I don't even care about the street credit shit. I don't, you know, whatever. I tried to separate that from the actual music. And uh, this young brother, NLE Chapa, he did his thing on Me Versus Me. But all things January 30th. In 1986, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, holds its first induction ceremony with many rock pioneers attending. In 1996, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood soundtrack is released, as well as Easy e releasing Straight Off the Streets of Motherfucking Compton. In 1999, Britney Spears' hit album and single, Baby One More Time, both hit number one on the Billboard charts. This is her first album and song to achieve this. The album spent six weeks on number one and a total of 103 weeks on the Billboard 200 charts. It's number 16 on the Billboard list, Best Female Albums of All Time, and number 41 on the Billboard list, Best Albums of All Time. The single, Baby One More Time, spent two consecutive weeks on number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and a total of 32 weeks on that same list. In 2004, You Got Served premiered in theaters. And <sighs> Megan Good. <laughs> oh, precious. I just want to touch that. Precious. Oh, I just want to sniff the hell. Oh, what does it smell like? <laughs> in 2009, Taken premiered in theaters, starring that racist ass Liam Neeson's. But more importantly than all that shit, on January 30th, 1969, the Beatles performed their last live gig, a 42-minute concert, on the roof of Apple Corp's headquarters in London, England. And I'm not the biggest Beatles fan. They got some tracks. They actually, I, I fucks with Abbey Road. The White Album is cool. Um, you know, they have peers from their era that I'm a bigger fan of. However, I do get the importance of the Beatles and the impact that they had. Uh, th they came and went well before my time, but I, I know that they were important figures in the genesis or the, the 
birth. I wouldn't even say the birth. They came a little after, but I know the importance they had in the early stages of rock and roll. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Big shit. I mean, the way they ended it, it was very rock and roll. You know, the police tried to stop them mid-show, but they carried that motherfucker on. They turned off microphones, they turned off amps, and then they turned the shit back on. And I feel like that is the spirit of rock and roll. Today in sports history, in 1936, new owners of baseball's Boston Braves surveyed newspaper journalists to pick a new team nickname, known as the Bees in 1940, but they returned to the Braves in 1941, for obvious reasons. In 1958, MLB Commissioner Ford Frick announces that players and coaches, rather than fans, will vote on the selections for the All-Star Game. The vote will return to the fans in 1970. In 1968, the NFL Draft is held. Ron Yeri from USC is the first pick by the Minnesota Vikings. In 1971, UCLA start their 88 basketball game winning streak. In 1973, the NFL Draft is held again. John Matisak from University of Tampa is the first pick by the Houston Oilers. In 1982, the WBC super welterweight champion Wilfred Benitez of Puerto Rico defeats boxing legend Roberto Duran of Panama in a 15-round unanimous decision at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. In 1983, Super Bowl 17 is held at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. The Washington Redskins defeat the Miami Dolphins 27-17. The MVP is John Riggins, running back of the Redskins. In 1990, L.A. center Wayne Gretzky sets an NHL record by scoring his 100th point of the season for the 11th straight season. The milestone comes with an assist in a 5-2 Kings win over visiting New Jersey Devils. In 1994, Super Bowl 28 is held at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia. The Dallas Cowboys defeat the Buffalo Bills 30-13. The MVP is Emmitt Smith, the running back for the Dallas Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? In 1996, future Basketball Hall of Famer Magic Johnson comes out of a five-year retirement, helps the LA Lakers to a 128-118 win over Golden State at the Great Western Forum with 19 points, 8 rebounds, and 10 assists. In 1998, All-Star Florida Marlin catcher Darren Dalton announces his retirement. In the year 2000, Super Bowl 34 is held again at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia. The St. Louis Rams beat the Tennessee Titans 23-16. The MVP is Kurt Warner, quarterback of the St. Louis Rams. Just one yard away, Tennessee. One yard. In 2002, Utah's Carl Malone becomes the second player in NBA history to register 34,000 career points by scoring 18 in a 90-78 win over Chicago at the Delta Center, trails only Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And in 2018, Houston guard James Harden puts up the highest scoring triple-double in NBA history with 60 points, 10 rebounds, and 11 assists as the Rockets beat the Orlando Magic 114-107 in Houston. And that was my half-assed sports report. Coming up, I'm going to be talking about the Beatles' final performance, live from the rooftops of Apple headquarters in London, England, January 30th, 1969. We'll be black after these messages.
Yeah. It's John Black. Bad child on the beat. Yeah. Like Betty White. Betty White. This beat, Betty Nice. Without the extra hype See my name will be known And they gon' spell it right Bad child on the beat As a lesson right Intensify the high The herb provide When we collectivize Never spend a minute Trying to worry about the when and why Time is of the essence Either flex or hope for second lives Only time I'm stepping in the club Is when they're checking sides Sprinkle game like cheddar fries Running with some better guys They dry as a desert tide My drive won't let it ride Dedicated years to this shit How I'ma let it die I've tried and been denied My pride, I kept it high Never got jacked for trying to get it through a skeptic guys yeah get it right this is music for the legend type you got to see it in a separate light so do your thing that's my best advice i'll be on till i'm gone and live long like betty white betty white betty white betty white when you're this good you set the price gave my life to this art from the start i hear them talking about the golden girls guns and gas go on the words i write hit hard like one to grow on grind so much i should get sponsored by volcom they ain't heard nothing quite like this in so long peace to the homies on trial that got told on i'm locked in the system like you into the cold wrong play this while you're doing your burpees getting your swole on i'm dedicated like an art lavoe slow song smoke strong to the point i'm getting tunnel vision but all i ever see is all this money that we missing i think we all agree there ain't no time for indecisions i ain't waiting for the day it come my way like main condition yeah trying to get myself clear like i said it right putting poetry to music do it every night so do your thing that's my best advice because i'll be gone till i'm gone and live long like betty white special mention to those no longer with us. Payne Stewart was an American professional golfer, born William Payne Stewart on January 30th, 1957 in Springfield, Missouri. He won 11 PGA Tour events, including three major championships. Stewart gained his first major title at the 1989 PGA Championship. He won the 1991 US Open after a playoff against Scott Simpson. At the 1999 U.S. Open, Stewart captured his third major title after holding a 15-foot par putt on the final hole for a one-stroke victory. Stewart was a popular golfer with spectators who responded enthusiastically to his distinct clothing. He was reputed to have the biggest wardrobe of all professional golfers and was a favorite of photographers because of his flamboyant attire of ivy caps and patterned pants, which were a cross between plus fours and knickerbockers, a throwback to the once commonplace golf uniform. Stewart was also admired for having one of the most gracefully fluid and stylish golf swings of the modern era. On October 25, 1999, a month after the American team rallied to win the Ryder Cup and four months after his U.S. Open victory, Stewart was killed in the crash of a Learjet flying from his home in Orlando, Florida to Texas for the year-ending tournament, the Tour Championship held at Champions Golf Club in Houston. National Transportation Safety Board investigators concluded that the aircraft failed to pressurize and that all on board died of hypoxia. As the aircraft passed to the west of Gainesville, Florida, the aircraft continued flying on autopilot until it ran out of fuel and crashed into a field near Minas, South Dakota. 
At the time of his death, Stewart had won $12,673,193 in career earnings. He won over $2 million during the 1999 season and finished seventh on the year's money list. He was 42 at the time of his death. Steve Marriott was an English musician, songwriter, and frontman guitarist. Born Stephen Peter Marriott on January 30, 1947 in Maynard Park, London, England, he performed in the band Small Faces from 1965 to 1968 and 1975 to 1978, and Humble Pie from 1969 to 1975 and 1979 to 1983, spanning over two decades. Marriott was inducted posthumously into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012 as a member of Small Faces. In Britain, Marriott became a popular, often photographed, mod-style icon. Marriott was influenced from an early age by his heroes, including Miles Davis, Buddy Holly, Booker T and the MGs, Ray Charles, Otis Redding, Muddy Waters, and Bobby Bland. In later life, Marriott became disillusioned with the music industry and turned his back on the big record companies, remaining in relative obscurity. He returned to his music roots, playing the pubs and clubs around London and Essex. Marriott died on April 20, 1991, when a fire which was thought to have been caused by a cigarette swept through his 16th century home in Arxton, Essex. He posthumously received an Ivor Novello Award in 1996 for his outstanding contribution to British music and was listed in Mojo as one of the top 100 greatest singers of all time. Black Sabbath frontman Ozzy Osbourne named Marriott the fourth greatest singer ever and Clem Burke of Blondie ranked him the 16th. Paul Stanley of Kiss called Marriott unbelievable and a hero of his, while Steve Perry of Journey named him one of his favorite singers. He was 44 at the time of his death. Marty Balin was an American singer, songwriter, and musician. Born Martin Gerald Buckwald on January 30, 1942 in Cincinnati, Ohio, he's best known as the founder and leader and one of the lead singers and songwriters of Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship. Ballin died at his home in Tampa on September 27, 2018, at the age of 76. Rest easy, y'all. On January 30, 1969, the Beatles performed an unannounced concert from the rooftop of their Apple Corps headquarters at 3 Seville Row within central London's office and fashion district. Joined by keyboardist Billy Preston, the band played a 42-minute set before the Metropolitan Police asked them to reduce the volume. It was the final public performance of their career. Although the concert was conceived just days before, the Beatles were planning a return to live performances throughout the early sessions for their album Let It Be. They performed nine takes of five songs as crowds of onlookers, many of whom were on their lunch break, congregated in the streets and on the roofs of local buildings. The concert ended with the conclusion of Get Back, with John Lennon joking, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we've passed the audition. Footage from the performance was used in the 1970 documentary film Let It Be, in the 2021 documentary series The Beatles, Get Back. The first performance of I've Got a Feeling and single takes of One After 909 and Dig a Pony were also featured on the accompanying album. On January 28, 2022, the audio of the full rooftop performance was released to streaming services. Although the rooftop concert was unannounced, the original intention behind the Beatles' Get Back project was for the band to make a return as live performers. 
The idea of a large public show was sidelined as one of George Harrison's conditions for returning to the group after walking out of the film rehearsals on January 10th. Another of his stipulations was that they move from Twickenham Film Studios to their Apple Corps headquarters and record their new songs in the basement of Apple Studio. On January 22nd, Harrison brought in keyboardist Billy Preston as an additional musician in the hope that a talented outsider would encourage the band to be tight and focused. There was a plan to play live somewhere. We were wondering where we could go. Oh, the Palladium or the Sahara, but we would have had to take all the stuff. So we decided, let's go up on the roof. Ringo Starr, 2000. Paul McCartney and Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director of the project, continued to hope that the Beatles would end the sessions with a live performance in front of an audience. According to Beatles historian Mark Lewison, it is uncertain who had the idea for a rooftop concert, but the suggestion was conceived just days before the actual event. In Preston's recollection, John Lennon thought up the idea to perform on the rooftop. In his autobiography, Sound Man, audio engineer Glenn John says the idea for the concert was his. He recalls that it originated from a lunchtime discussion when Ringo Starr mentioned that there was a great view of London's West End from the roof and then took Johns and Lindsay Hogg up to see it. Mal Evans, the Beatles road manager, recorded in his diary that the idea came about after we'd taken a breath of fresh air on the roof after lunch on January 26. Peter Jackson's documentary series, The Beatles Get Back, shows Johns and Lindsay Hogg presenting McCartney with the idea and McCartney being excited about it. Starr was initially determined not to play, and Harrison was reluctant. The January 29th audio tapes for Lindsay Hogg's production capture McCartney pleading with Lennon that a live performance was essential to maintain the Beatles' connection with their audience, and the band members merely needed to overcome that stage fright. In a group discussion at the end of the day, Harrison talked enthusiastically about the upcoming show for the first time and joked about performing for an audience of chimneys. Consistent with the decision he made during the Twickenham rehearsals, however, Harrison declined to have any of his songs included in the set. Evans organized for a stage to be built on the Apple rooftop and for the band's equipment to be set up there. The instruments used during the performance were Lennon's stripped-back Epiphone Casino, McCartney's signature Hoffner violin bass, Harrison's new custom-made Rosewood Fender Telecaster, and Starr's recently acquired Ludwig drum kit, along with an electric piano for Preston. Johns and assistant engineer Alan Parsons purchased women's stockings from a local Marks and Spencer store to protect the microphones from the winter wind. Plans to hire a helicopter to capture aerial footage were abandoned. The audio was recorded onto two eight-track recorders in the basement studio at Apple by Johns and Parsons. Lindsay Hogg's crew used six cameras to film several angles of the performance. In addition to cameras located on the rooftop with the band, one camera was placed without permission on the roof of a building across the street. A camera was hidden behind a two-way mirror in the reception area of the building, ready to capture any disruption caused by the loud music, and two cameras were on the street to film interviews and reactions from passers-by. Up until minutes before the performance, according to Lindsay Hogg, the Beatles were still undecided about performing the concert. He recalled that they had discussed it and then gone silent until John said in the silence, fuck it, let's go do it. The four Beatles and Preston arrived on the roof at around 12.30. When the musicians started playing, there was confusion among members of the public, many of whom were on their lunch break. As the news of the event spread, crowds began to congregate in the streets and on the roofs of nearby buildings. 
While most responded positively to the concert, the Metropolitan Police grew concerned about noise and traffic issues, having received complaints from several local businesses. The film cameras captured police officers arriving at Apple to stop their performance. Apple employees initially kept the officers in reception and refused to lift them up to the roof, but reconsidered when threatened with arrest. According to Johns, the band fully expected to be interrupted by the police, since there was a police station not far along Seville Row. The authorities' intervention satisfied a suggestion made by McCartney earlier in January that the Beatles should perform their concert in a place we're not allowed to do it, like we should trespass, go in, set up, and then get moved. Getting forcibly ejected, still trying to play your numbers, and the police lifting you. The officers ascended to the roof just as the Beatles began the second take of Don't Let Me Down. During the next number, the final version of Get Back, McCartney improvised the lyrics to reflect the situation. You've been playing on the roofs again, and you know your mama doesn't like it. She's going to have you arrested. Acting on the police officer's instructions, Evans turned off Lennon and Harrison's guitar amplifiers mid-song, only for Harrison to turn his amplifier back on in defiance. Evans then turned Lennon's back on as the band continued to play. The concert came to an end with the conclusion of Get Back. McCartney said thanks, Mo, in response to applause and cheers from Maureen Starkey, Ringo Starr's wife. The Beatles' rooftop concert can be seen as their farewell gig and marked the end of an era for many fans. The group did record one more album, Abbey Road, for which work started the following month, but by September 1969, Lennon had left the band. Several of the rooftop performances, particularly that of Dig a Pony, were regarded as showing the Beatles once again in top form. At the time, many observers believed the concert was a trial run for a return to live performances and touring, with the band re-engaging with the rock and roll roots. The concert footage provided the climax of Lindsey Hogg's documentary, originally planned as a TV special, but released as the Lit It Be film in May of 1970, a month after the Beatles' breakup. According to author James Perrone, the concert achieved iconic status, both among fans as the Beatles' final live appearance and in the history of rock music on the level of the Monterey Pop, Woodstock, and Altamont festivals. He says that although the show was not technically a concert due to the secrecy surrounding its presentation, and the band's last official concert was on August 29, 1966 in San Francisco, it stood out for capturing the sort of unpredictability that became typical of live rock performances in 1969. The Ruddles Get Up and Go sequence in the 1978 film All You Need Is Cash mimics the footage of the rooftop concert and uses similar camera angles. In January 2009, tribute band the Bootleg Beatles attempted to stage a 40th anniversary concert in the same location, but were refused permission by Westminster City Council due to licensing problems. In The Simpsons' 1993 fifth-season episode, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, the B-Sharps, Homer, Apu, Barney, and Principal Skinner perform a rendition of one of their previous hits, Baby on Board, on the rooftop of Moe's Tavern. George Harrison, who guest-starred in the episode, is shown saying dismissively, It's been done. As the song ends and the credits begin, Homer repeats John Lennon's phrase about passing the audition, and everyone laughs, including Barney, until he says, I don't get it. McCartney played a surprise mini-concert in Midtown Manhattan from the top of the marquee of the Ed Sullivan Theater on July 15, 2009, where he was recording a performance for The Late Show with David Letterman. News of the event spread via Twitter and word of mouth, and nearby street corners were closed off to accommodate fans for the set. Happy anniversary, Beatles. Thank you, Ringo. Thank you, George. 
Thank you, Paul. Thank you, John. For your contributions to rock and roll, to music, and to pop culture in general. Today's birthdays for January 30th. Turning 35 today is Irish wrestler Becky Lynch. Turning 38 today is American entertainer and fellow Ohioan Kid Cudi. Go Ohio! Happy 42nd birthday to American actor and producer Wilmer Valderrama. Yo mama! Turning 46 today is American entertainer Andy Melanakis. Remember him? Happy 48th birthday to British actor Batman himself Christian Bale. Happy 49th birthday to American basketball player, sportscaster, and my favorite of the Fab Five, Jalen Rose. Turning 58 today is American basketball player, coach, and manager, Otis Smith. Happy 63rd birthday to American entertainer, Jody Watley. Happy 69th birthday to both American actor and director, Charles S. Dutton, as well as English drummer, singer, songwriter, producer, and actor, Phil Collins. Turning 79 today is American businessman, politician, the 46th Vice President of the United States, and the 17th U.S. Secretary of Defense, Tricky Dick Cheney. And a very happy 92nd birthday to American actor and author, Gene Hackman. That wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Please make sure to check out Happening in the 90s every Thursday with my buddy Matt G. Crush Gasm on Wednesdays with Kendra. B3F Podcast as well as Don't Worry Be Movies with Amanda and Wade. Y'all be cool now. Peace.